Pierre Giorgio Versati once said, The end for which we are created invites us to walk a road that is surely sown with a lot of thorns, but it is not sad even through the sorrow. It is illuminated by joy. Welcome to the 81st episode of St. Dymphna's Playbook, the SDP, if you want to be cool, a production of the Grexley Podcast Network. My name is Tommy. I'm a cradle Catholic, a marriage and family therapist, a husband and father of five boys, four on earth and one in heaven. Love you, Luke. And I'm here to fill the void of Catholic conversations about mental health because I want us all to remember that life can often feel like an endless valley of darkness, but be assured, no matter how it might feel, there is hope, comfort, and consolation waiting for us. We like to kick it off around here with a quick refresh of our notifications. It's time for St. Dymphna's Mentions. First up, a question came in that I think will help everyone. How do people afford therapy? My husband and I went to weekly couples counseling for a year, and while it was very helpful, it also cost $300 a session. Is this a normal price range? We're lucky to both be employed, but counseling costs more than our housing. I am reluctant to seek therapy for myself because of this. I don't blame you. Let's start by praying that therapy can become something we're all able to access regardless of cost, location, insurance, or any other reason. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. First off, $300 sounds absolutely bonkers to me. Uh, But in full transparency, I've only ever worked for county mental health, like community mental health, never in private practice. So I'm not sure what it's really like out there. But as to how do people afford therapy, I'll give it my best shot. Let's start by sorting people into three categories. Those with private health insurance through their employer, those with government insurance like Medicare and Medicaid, and those with no insurance. For those with private health insurance through their employer, the typical first step to reaching out for therapy is to talk to one's primary care physician. Depending on your insurance, your PCP will either submit a referral or direct you to contact member services to get connected to a therapist that's contracted under your insurance. I have Kaiser as an example, and they have therapists in-house who I can see for a small copay. If you have a PPO, your member services department would provide you a few names of therapists in your area who they contract with and should still accept a relatively small copay for services. For those with government insurance like Medicare or Medicaid, the best approach to connect with a therapist would be to contact the local mental health access line, most likely by Googling the name of your county and mental health access line, and then calling them up. Of course, with uh, Medicaid, this varies across the state, but here where I'm at in California, you would be connected with a therapist that is completely covered by Medi-Cal. No copays, no payments per session, etc. Medicare may require a copay depending on your plan, but it should still be pretty reasonable. Last, for those with no insurance, the options would again vary by state. Here in California, if one qualifies for Medi-Cal, then they would get temporary insurance and then route through the same way I just noted. But for those who make too much uh, for that insurance and still don't have private insurance through their employer, the best route would be a sliding scale therapist in the community. These are found either at community mental health centers or at grad schools where people are training to become therapists and they're going to be people who are supervised by a licensed therapist. And you would expect to pay something like 50 to $75 per session. At least that's how it is out here in the Bay Area of California. 
I hope that helps paint a picture and good luck getting connected to someone at a fair price. On to the next topic, how can teachers support students experiencing mental health issues and how can they support families of these students? This is so important, especially during this pandemic. One of the first places mental health might be spotted or mental health treatment might get started is in school. And because of that, we have to work hard to get these services in schools and to have teachers be prepared to notice and refer students who are struggling. We'll go through some thoughts from the American Psychological Association first on how to spot mental health symptoms coming up in kids. Across a multitude of situations, students may have responded to the crises that they have experienced by showing abrupt changes in personal hygiene, sleep routines, weight, school performance, mood, disruptive behavior, and or participation in activities. Pre-K and kindergarten students may appear sleepy, withdraw from friends and typical routines, display display a reluctance to attend school or participate in activities or cling to parents or caregivers once they arrive. In addition, a teacher may observe a regression in a student's behavior in the form of thumb sucking, incontinence, or separation anxiety. Elementary students may be more irritable, aggressive, quiet, or clingy. They may have nightmares, avoid school, or withdraw from activities and friends. Children may show increased worry about family members or friends. Middle and high school students may display sleeping and eating disturbances, physical complaints, delinquent behavior, or increased in conflict. They may have trouble concentrating or become agitated easily. And now let's focus on what teachers can do to help. Show caring by noticing changes in behavior. For example, you don't seem like yourself lately. Is there something going on? Invite students to connect via email when appropriate. Call their parents or by mailing a note to their homes with a self-addressed stamped envelope for them to write you back. Again, all within the appropriate guidelines of the school. Schedule regular check-ins with students, families you're concerned about, either virtually or in person. Lend an ear. Give a casual invitation like, let's talk. Let students know you are one of the adults here to keep them safe. Do more listening than talking. Provide opportunities for students to express their feelings. Invite them to write or draw about their experiences and feelings. Remain calm when discussing those experiences and feelings. And keep to routines as much as possible. Let's keep advocating for mental health services and emotional support in our children's schools at all levels, especially during this difficult time. So each episode, I'm going to introduce you to a saint who can help us along our journey with mental health and wellness as Catholics. It's called Friend Request, and today I'm going to introduce you to Blessed Marguerite Rutan. Born in 1736 in France, Marguerite was the eighth of 15 children, and she was baptized within hours of her birth. Her father introduced her to mathematics and linear design to the point where she was able to keep the accounts of his business. At the age of 21, she had a profound conviction that Jesus Christ was calling her to the service of the poor, and she joined the Vicentian Sisters in 1757 as a novitiate. She was asked by the bishop to take charge of a new hospital and arrived with seven sisters in 1779, taking on the role of mother superior. She was known as a pioneer in social work and opened schools and a shelter for girls. However, with the French Revolution raging on, anti-religious sentiment led to the government wanting to discredit Rutan. It was alleged that she harbored anti-revolution sentiment and fanatic views. In May 1792, the order's chaplain did not swear the oath of allegiance and was replaced with a new chaplain 
chaplain who did swear it, and in June, the sisters were accused of being thieves. The nuns of the congregation refused to take the oath in October of 1793, which led to greater tension and great fear in the close circles of the sisters. Marguerite was thrown into prison on Christmas Eve 1793, kept in total isolation, and was sentenced to the guillotine on April 9, 1794. And after her execution, she was buried in a mass grave. Marguerite was intelligent, holy, hardworking, and a compassionate woman who stood up to an abusive and oppressive power by continuing to love others and serve those most in need. And now she stands before the throne of God, ready to intercede for all who call to her. We like to close out this part of the podcast with a prayer, and we'll go with a Vincentian prayer for those without homes. O God, you are a God of justice, mercy, and compassion. Support us, your servants of the poor, as we endeavor to bring your love and compassion to people who are without homes and in need of your love. We pray that we will see you, our all-loving God, in each unhoused person we encounter and in our service for those in need. May we do all in our power to support each person so they experience the fullness of life. We ask this prayer through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And now you can't do therapy over Twitter, but I'm happy to take your tweets and help you explore a bit in the hopes of finding a light in the darkness. It's time for Twitter therapy. Andrea gets us started. I hate to say it, but the pandemic was good for my mental health. I never really realized how much I was waiting for the other shoe to drop until the whole world was plunged into a crisis. My low-grade anxiety basically vanished in the face of a real disaster, and now I'm worried about what will happen when my world opens back up. Does a return to normalcy have to mean a return to worry? How can I take this experience and try to build a better future? Let's start by praying for Andrea and everyone worried about what a return to normalcy after the pandemic will do to their mental health, especially after finding solace in the lockdowns. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. First, I want to say what a great blessing it is that you found peace and comfort during the pandemic. And far from having to feel bad about saying it, I think you voiced something that is probably true for a lot of us. Increased time at home, decreased time in uncomfortable social situations, opportunities to avoid certain anxieties in our lives. For many of us, the lockdowns actually brought some peace. And so, with the prospect of things opening up more thanks to vaccines and results from social distancing and masking, some of us are starting to fear a return of our anxiety when life gets back to normal. But not to worry, this moment is actually the perfect time to prepare and get ready for the potential of anxiety coming back. We're going to look at counselingtoday.org for some ideas, and I'll mix in my own thoughts along the way. First, write down a list of specific worries. The first step to solving a problem is understanding what is happening. What has caused us anxiety in the past? Uncertainty produces hypervigilance in our brain, and our brains are on high alert for increasing our levels of stress. So examine your worries. Aim to be realistic in your assessment of the actual concern and your ability to cope. Focus on what you can do. Your life is going to be different for a while, but identifying what worries you have and focusing on what you can control will make the difference. Number two, make a list of possible solutions. 
Think of all possible options. Include whatever possibilities come to mind that could help you get by, even if it's not your ideal option. The goal is to focus on concrete things that you can problem solve or change. A solution-focused approach will help you focus on your strengths instead of your weaknesses. Think about how you've been able to cope with difficulties in the past by asking yourself questions such as, how have I managed to carry on? Or how have I managed to prevent things from becoming worse? You evaluate your options and develop a plan. And then having a plan will move you from paralyzing anxiety to action. Put your attention on strengths and abilities and imagine yourself coping and adapting. Number three is know your emotional triggers. Pinpoint what your emotional triggers are and how you react to them. It's natural to feel stressed about what might happen if our income doesn't cover our obligations or if someone we love gets sick. But when hopelessness and despair enter the picture or take hold and just will not go away, then we need to pay closer attention because it may be a sign of depression or anxiety becoming overwhelming. But remember, there is hope. There is a solution even when we can't see it at the moment. Number four, conduct a strength inventory. Identify what negative thoughts you struggle with and replace or reframe how you're viewing your challenges. If you've been through difficult situations in the past, and most of us have been through those at some point in our lives, identify what got you through them and use it to your advantage. Just know we'll be praying for you. Anonymous is up next. I'd like your thoughts on childhood masturbation. She's 10 years old and did not know what she was doing, probably until honestly senior year of high school. Would that have started because of emotional abuse, since I know there was never sexual abuse? So let's all join together first for all children and parents who find themselves in this situation and any situation where they're not sure what to do, that their guardian angels may guide them and keep them safe. Angel of God, my guardian dear, to whom God's love commits me here, ever this day be at my side, to light and guard, to rule and guide. Amen. I first want to make sure I mention that I am not an expert in the least when it comes to working with kids. Everyone starts working with kids when they're a therapist, but it's been like 16 years or so uh, of working primarily with adults. So I just want to put that caveat out there. Next, uh, I would like to say it may be connected to emotional abuse. However, as you referenced, it would primarily be associated uh, when we think of things with a history of sexual abuse. And if that didn't happen, I have a couple of other thoughts. First, anxiety relief. So sometimes we're dealing with such intense anxiety, even at a young age, that we'll do anything just to feel a sense of relief. And somehow, just like when we start to engage in cutting for coping, we come upon this way of relieving our anxiety, this coping mechanism. And it might be totally unrelated to our sexuality, especially when we're 10, right? But instead, it might be nothing more than stress relief. Next, it might be a normal situation of exploring one's body and engaging in a behavior that quickly becomes routine. Again, not necessarily connected to sexuality, but just a matter of development that can happen to each of us at different times in our life. Of course, I would want to make sure everyone understands that in the cases noted above, this action wouldn't be a sin. Or should I say this 10-year-old would certainly not be culpable for the sin as we would think of it with an adult. Just know that we'll be praying for you and remember that you can always get connected to therapy if you'd like help navigating things with someone who can get a better grasp of the whole situation on the ground. Father Anonymous wraps us up. If you haven't done so already, could you say something about how to recognize the abuse of power uh, and the abuse of conscience? Both can cause great mental and spiritual anguish, and I'd appreciate your thoughts on it and perhaps some suggestions on how to be aware of when it could be happening and how to cope or recover from the damage caused by such abuse. Let's start by praying for everyone suffering through this type of abuse and everyone wanting to help them escape it and find safety. 
Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who fled to thy protection, implored thy help, or sought thine intercession was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, I fly unto thee, O Virgin of virgins, my mother. To thee do I come, before thee I stand, sinful and sorrowful. O Mother of the Word incarnate, despise not my petitions, but in thy mercy hear and answer me. Amen. First, as we've done in the past, I want to remind people just how broad abuse can be. Too often we limit the idea of abuse to physical or sexual abuse, when in reality, abuse can come in many different forms. This time we'll go with a list from loveisrespect.org. Physical abuse is any intentional, unwanted contact with you or something close to your body, or any behavior that causes or has the intention of causing you injury, disability, or death. Emotional abuse includes non-physical behavior such as threats, insults, constant monitoring or checking in, excessive texting, humiliation, intimidation, isolation, or stalking. Sexual abuse refers to any behavior that pressures or coerces someone to do something sexually they don't want to do. Financial abuse is a form of abuse when one intimate partner has control over the other partner's access to economic resources, which diminishes the victim's capacity to support themselves and forces them to depend on the perpetrator financially. It often operates in more subtle ways than other forms of abuse, but it can be just as harmful to those who experience it. Digital dating abuse is the use of technologies like texting and social media to bully, harass, stalk, or intimidate a partner. This behavior is often a form of verbal or emotional abuse conducted online. We've looked at other lists on the past, which also include cultural abuse in addition to others, but I think I just want to make the point that abuse can happen to us in a number of ways, and it's important to be able to recognize the signs of abuse and to stay alert. We'll look to verywellmind.com for signs of verbal abuse and abuse of power that we can uh, watch out for in our lives. When it comes to verbal abuse or abuse of power, victims often question whether or not what they are experiencing is truly abusive. They also wonder whether or not it's a big deal. Here are some signs that a family member, friend, peer, dating partner, or other acquaintance is verbally abusive or trying to use their power to abuse us. They call us names. Anytime someone engages in name calling, it's a form of verbal abuse. Even if the names are said in a neutral voice, this is not an acceptable treatment of another person. They use words to shame us. Examples include critical, sarcastic, or mocking words that are meant to put us down. These may be comments about the way we dress, talk, or our intelligence. Basically, shaming is any comment that makes us feel inferior or ashamed of who we are. They make jokes at our expense, typically verbally abusive jokes that'll make us the butt of their jokes. If we don't find it funny, then it's not harmless fun. What's more, verbally abusive people usually select jokes that attack an area where we feel most vulnerable or weak. They humiliate us in public. When we're insulted in public by a peer, a friend, a family member, or a dating partner, this can be particularly painful. They criticize us. Whether done in public or in private, criticism can be painful, particularly if the person doing it is criticizing us simply to be mean and has no intention of being constructive. They yell, scream, or swear at us. Anytime someone yells or curses at us, this is a display of power, and the goal is to control and intimidate us into submission. As a result, it's, an abuse, it's abusive, right, and should not be tolerated or excused. Next, they make threats. No threat should ever be taken lightly. When people make threats, they're trying to control and manipulate us. Remember, there is no better way to control someone than to make them fearful in some way. 
The goal of an abuser is to control us by making us feel bad about who we are. Now we'll take a look at what to do when we're experiencing this kind of abuse. The first step in dealing with verbal abuse is to recognize it. If you're able to identify any type of verbal abuse in your relationship, it's important to acknowledge it first and foremost. By being honest about what you're experiencing, you can begin to take steps to gain back control. While you need to consider your individual situation and circumstances, these tips can help you if you find yourself in a verbally abusive relationship. First, set boundaries. Firmly tell the verbally abusive person that they may no longer criticize judge or shame you name call threaten you and so on then tell them what will happen if they continue this abusive behavior for instance tell them that if they scream or swear at you the conversation will be over and you will leave the room the key is to follow through don't set boundaries you have no intention of keeping next limit exposures if possible take time away from the verbally abusive person and spend time with people who love and support you limiting exposure with the person can give you space to reevaluate your relationship Surrounding yourself with a network of friends and family will help you feel less lonely and isolated and remind you of what a healthy relationship should look like. Next, end the relationship. If there are no signs that the, verbally abuse, the verbal abuse will end or that the person has any intention of working on their behavior, you will likely need to take steps to end the relationship. Before doing so, share your thoughts and ideas with a trusted friend, family member, or counselor. You may also want to come up with a safety plan in case the abuse escalates when you break things off. And last, seek help. Healing from a verbally abusive relationship may not be something you can do on your own. Reach out to trusted loved ones for support and consider talking to a therapist who can help you process your emotions and develop healthy coping skills for dealing with the short and long-term consequences of verbal abuse. I hope that helps. All right, everyone, that's it for today's episode. Remember, you can email, DM, or tweet your questions and situations. If you'd like me to address them in a future episode, I'd be happy to keep you anonymous or not, whatever you want. Be sure to check out patreon.com slash to see all the great things they've got going on over there and support the cause. And until next time, go easy on yourselves. Take care of yourselves. And if you feel like you're in a place where you can't even bring yourself to pray, don't worry. I'll be praying for you, and so will St. Dymphna.